The forgiveness of sins is a basic doctrine of the Christian faith. One of the articles of faith cited by the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed declares, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. From beginning to end, this is proclaimed as the heart of the gospel. It is the good news because in Jesus Christ, through his atoning work, man finds forgiveness of sin. In the world of humanism, the word forgiveness refers to an emotional and a personal act. It depends on how we feel about someone, whether we forgive him or not. This concept has nothing to do with the biblical doctrine of forgiveness. The biblical doctrine of forgiveness, in fact, the Greek word, which is translated as forgiveness in the New Testament, is entirely a judicial or legal term. It has reference to a court of law. And it only and always means something with reference to the proceedings of a court of law. It has two basic meanings. First, charges dropped because satisfaction has been rendered. Now this makes it clear that forgiveness has reference to a guilty person. The person on trial is clearly and unquestionably guilty. The charges are dropped only because satisfaction has been rendered, the death penalty has been executed, or restitution has been made. The second meaning, a subordinate one, charges deferred for the time being. The person is guilty, but the hearing is deferred for a time, or rather the passing of the sentence. There is one instance only in the New Testament of the usage in the second sense. When our Lord on the cross said, Father, speaking of the Roman soldiers, forgive them, defer the charges for the time being, for they know not what they do. Forgiveness, therefore, has reference to a court of law and in the biblical sense entirely to God's court of law, to God's judgment seat. and what is done to guilty men who find their peace with God through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness, therefore, in the biblical sense, is entirely of God's grace through Jesus Christ. The person of the believer is accepted as righteous not because of what he has done, but because of what Christ has done not because the believer himself is able to make restitution, he is under sentence of death, but because Christ has paid the penalty. The implications of this doctrine were 
very beautifully put into poetry some few years back by a Canadian poet. The title of her poem was My Advocate. I sinned. And straightway, post haste, Satan flew before the presence of the Most High God and made a railing accusation there. He said, This soul, this thing of clay and sod, has sinned. Tis true that he is named thy name, but I demand his death. For thou hast said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Shall not thy sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night. And every word he spoke, O God, was true. Then quickly, one rose up from God's right hand before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke. Each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner died. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me, and that I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, my feet. One day I was made sin for him. Died that he might be presented faultless at thy throne. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord spoke was true. Forgiveness is the act of God through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness means that the sentence of death against man has been dropped because satisfaction has been rendered. Now the unregenerate sinner is concerned with forgiveness, but not of sins, but rather of the consequence of the penalty of sin. He wants the charges to be dropped without satisfaction, freedom granted to him to sin some more. And so he wants something that will tell him that sin is not killing that it not, does not destroy, and that a man can be forgiven without grace, without repentance, and without regeneration. And forgiveness in this sense has played an important part in history, and many political figures have offered it. The classic example, of course, is Julius Caesar who gained power in the course of Rome's civil wars precisely because he offered clemencia, because he offered to forgive and forget all sins and restore people to their previous estate without any penalty for their sins. Indeed, Caesar was able to overlook the sin of men, but he could not change their hearts. And the very men whom he forgave and restored to their high places were the men who assassinated him. All he had done was to give them 
a subsidy in their sins. And today, in effect, this is our program today. We, too, are offering forgiveness of sins to criminals, to hoodlums, to all on every side, telling them that sin is of no consequence. Go and sin some more and prepare the way for our national execution. Every political attempt to forgive sins without grace, without salvation, has only increased lawlessness and chaos and become a subsidy to sin and a means to the triumph of sin. We should not be surprised that sin is subsidized in political circles because political saviors have a vested interest in sin. Sin is always a major instrument of political power. To examine how this is true and why it is true, first of all, blackmail is a major instrument of power. We know from long years of experience how the communist countries have made a practice of compromising diplomats and military men in various acts of immorality and perversion in order that they might blackmail them. We know also that this sort of thing has been done extensively in this country as a means to political power so that men in high places, the very top in Washington, in Congress, in the cabinet, in the Pentagon, in state and local levels, are regularly compromised and then blackmailed as a means of controlling them. And various unsavory characters have made this their chief and central instrument of political power. Secondly, political saviors have a vested interest in sin and therefore subsidize religion because religion is necessary for political power. For men to be blackmailed, sin must be reprehensible to the public so that the sinner's acts can, if they are exposed, destroy or endanger his career. After all, how can you blackmail a person? How can you exercise power and control over him if everyone accepts fornication and adultery and perversion as though there were nothing wrong with it? So you must have sufficient religion, but not sound religion to make people feel that sin is sinful. Hence, religion must preach moralism, not salvation. It must make sin socially reprehensible without liberating men from it, without declaring that when the sinner comes to Jesus Christ, his sins are all forgiven. For St. Paul declared, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. 
kind of religion the state favors is that where the churches, the evangelists, the chaplains will make sinners feel guilty but will not deliver men into God's liberty and grace, will not proclaim the forgiveness of sins through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And so the state has a vested interest in apostate religion to make sin terrible but release from sin impossible. Third, the state has a vested interest in sin because sinners are slaves because a guilty conscience makes men more readily controlled. A man with a guilty conscience is not a free man. He is in bondage and his life reveals his inner slavery. Through the years as a pastor I have seen some fearful episodes where wives have worked night and day to try to push their husband into sin, into adultery, for one reason, knowing that a guilty conscience would make them more amenable to control and figuring this would be the way they could control their husbands. And cases where husbands have done the same tried to push their wives into adultery so that thereby, with their guilty conscience, they will exercise less control over their husband's conduct. Sin enslaves men. It binds their hands so that they are not morally free to condemn that which is evil and to stand up boldly for that which is righteous. As Shakespeare said, conscience does make cowardice of us all. The power state, therefore, works to promote immorality as a necessity and declares that human liberty involves the freedom to sin. And so we have the doctrine promulgated today increasingly by the courts and by the pulpit that the freedom to commit various acts of perversion, the freedom to be adulterous, the freedom to fornicate, the freedom to have pornography are all enlargements of man's liberty knowing full well that these are the acts that enslave men. So the courts tell us on the one hand how much they are enlarging our liberties, whereas on the other hand they are steadily destroying them by working to destroy Christianity and increase statism. Every time in history that a power state has moved towards totalitarian controls, it has dangled this pseudo-liberty of sexual license before the people, persuading them that this represents an enlargement of liberty, even as it, through growing totalitarianism, 
enslaves them. We see today the courts, the schools, the pulpits, interpreting liberty as license and liberty from Christianity as true liberty. The new freedom of today simply produces the old slavery. Where there is no forgiveness of sins, there is the condoning of sin. And when men are sinners, they hate judgment. They want sin to escape judgment. And so they turn on the law and they seek to destroy it. They seek to take away the penalty of death. And you have a campaign in every such period of history against capital punishment, against laws concerning abortion, against severity of punishment, so-called and a coddling of criminals is advocated. Today, in our criminal courts, the criminal has more rights than the person who is the victim of the crime. In our civil courts, the situation is not too different. About 20 years ago, a survey in New York County revealed that in the civil courts where defrauded persons had secured a judgment, only 7% were able to collect on that judgment. And the situation is far worse today. In other words, even when a person wins in a civil court, the court gives him no help towards collecting his judgment. This is not surprising. Where there is no forgiveness of sins, where men have not found forgiveness in and through Jesus Christ, there is the condoning of sins because men want to break the backbone of the law since they themselves are guilty of sin. Moreover, where there is no forgiveness of sins, there is bondage to sin. People lack faith and courage to rebel against evil, against injustice. And they simply complain. They are impotent. They are surrounded by evil, but they are slaves within to sin. And they can only groan and complain under it. They can do nothing about it. St. Paul declared to the Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 16 through 25 that the remission of sins gave to the believer boldness in relationship to God. Because the believer, being now a member of Jesus Christ, came to God not in himself, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when we are members of Christ, God sees not us in all our sins and shortcomings, but the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that we can come to God in all boldness in Jesus' name. 
having, as St. Paul declared, full assurance of faith, knowing that he hears us and that we are wholly acceptable in him who is our Lord. This is the glorious fact of the forgiveness of sins. It gives us boldness in relationship to God. And if it gives us boldness in relationship to God, how much more so boldness in relationship to men. It frees men from the penalty of sin and death and from the fear of men. The sinner lived in fear of God and man. Adam and Eve hid themselves from God and came from God and man. And sinners through the centuries have by their guilt sought a hiding place from God and also from man. The modern hiding place of the sinner is in the apostate churches. They clothe themselves in the modern fig leaves, the apostate church, or else they hide in unbelief. They assume that if they say there is no God, somehow God will go away and their guilty conscience also. But the forgiveness of sins restores, as Paul told the Hebrews, man into communion with God and to his rightful place as Lord of the earth under God. It is man's liberation from God's judgment and from the sentence of death which is written even in his own heart. It is man's restoration into his calling as man and his restoration also into clear thinking. The forgiveness of sins is the act primarily of the triune God. As the scribes said rightfully in Mark 2, 6 through 12, who can forgive sins but God only? And Jesus accepted the challenge and demonstrated by his miracle as well as by his proclamation of the forgiveness of sins that indeed he was a very God of very God and so he alone had the power to forgive sins. There can be no human forgiveness on humanistic grounds such as love or emotionalism or sentimentalism or craving for peace. Forgiveness can only be on God's grounds. And therefore our Lord said repeatedly that the church must bind whosoever sins cannot be forgiven according to the word of God, and they are then bound in heaven. And it must release and can release whosoever sins. The word of God permits us to release, and they are then released or loosed in heaven. Forgiveness can only be on God's terms, never on man. But universalism wants total forgiveness, total love, which means the denial of the fact of sin and the necessity for judgment, 
It means a total subsidy for sin and moral anarchism. It means, therefore, perpetual bondage to sin and a world in bondage to sin and death. But the forgiveness of sins is the ground of our liberty, of the glorious liberty of the sons of God. And it gives us boldness of access to the throne of grace and boldness and power before him. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto thee that in Jesus Christ our sins are forgiven. And we can come to thee in boldness and commit unto thee our every hope, our every need, ourselves, in the confidence, our Father, that we are wholly acceptable in the Beloved, even in Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, our Father, fill our hearts with thanksgiving and boldness, that we may come unto thee and find rest and refreshing unto our souls, and might go forth to thee more than conquerors through him that loved us, even Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now? Yes. We do not have a definite one. We are going to meet at uh, Jeanette Maxwell's until we can find something, since we just learned of this. In fact, only yesterday. Thus, any help we can get will be appreciated. Are there any questions? Yes. I was thinking of the scripture that's been used by modern teachers and jurors to justify
to put Jesus in a difficult spot. The Old Testament penalty for adultery was death. In the New Testament, this was changed uh, to making it a ground for divorce. Now, the Pharisees knew that at that time the whole matter was taken rather lightly in Israel. That for him to have said that the death penalty was required would have been to make himself immensely unpopular with the people. But if he refused to say so, they could say he pretends to be for the law. But actually, he has no respect for the law. So they figured either way they were going to nail him on this uh, situation. And Jesus said, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now this had reference to the law of witnesses. In the Mosaic law, a witness who perjured himself or was an accessory to the fact or was involved in a similar crime or didn't come into the situation with clean hands was liable to the same penalty In the Mosaic Law, a witness who perjured himself or was an accessory to the fact or was involved in a similar crime or didn't come into the situation with clean hands was liable to the same penalty uh, as the person he was testifying against. So, if you testified against a person who, uh, whose sentence was going to be death and you are found to be a perjured witness, you had the death sentence. If it were a case in which the restitution were, say, $10,000, you paid 10000 Now, to back up your testimony, if you were a faithful and honest witness, you had to then assist in the execution. So, our Lord said to them, those of you who are not perjured or dishonest witnesses, for without guilt, who have not committed adultery yourself, take up and cast the first stone against her. Otherwise, I do not recognize you as a witness. In other words, what he did was to put the finger on them. You're accusing this woman of adultery, but you yourselves are adulterous. All of you. Therefore, every one of you are equally exposed to the death penalty. And he didn't deny the death penalty because he said, cast the first stone. But be sure you're innocent. And so they left. They which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. For all they knew, he might have some evidence on them, you see. He was 
reading their hearts, but whatever it was, they didn't want to stay around to be exposed. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man. Lord. Now, she didn't call him master or rabbi as they had done, teacher, but Lord, which means God. In other words, she came there and recognized him for what he was and believed on him. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Now that you believe on me, your sins are forgiven. Therefore, go and sin no more. So, our Lord said the death penalty stands, but let there be valid accusers, valid witnesses. And every one of you are guilty. You are not qualified, therefore, as witnesses. And when she turned to him by faith, he acquitted her. Yes. Um, not too long ago, I heard a letter um, concerning a uh, sermon preached in the East in a Methodist church. Uh, to some such part of the best margin, if you can remember, uh, the advantages of um, adultery was the sermon that was preached. And he used this text. And he said that um, where Jesus said, um, he said, no man, Lord, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Because they know basically that its meaning is against them. 
there was another um, passage that uh, is used by the apostate churches uh, and many of the, the new modern thinkers that um, in John 17 and the 21st verse where Jesus was praying to God and he said neither pray I for these alone in, in uh, verse 20 neither pray I for these alone but for them also that shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And this was interpreted the last week to me as um, uh, being the verse that they used to prove that man is uh, become God. Well, what it very obviously says is the 20th verse makes clear neither pray I for these alone but for them also which shall believe on me through their word in other words I am praying for my disciples but I am also praying for those who through their preaching are going to believe on me the believers to the end of time who through the word of God who not having seen me will still believe that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, there, first, there is the condition of faith. Second, there is the union with God by faith. It is not a union of substance, but a community of life. Thus, when we speak of marriage, we say the twain shall be made one flesh, one life. But this does not mean that the man becomes a woman or the woman becomes a man. It refers to a community of life. And St. Paul in Ephesians 5, which is essentially an interpretation of this same point, says that marriage is a type of the relationship of Christ and the church. Christ is the husband, the church as the bride. And it means a community of life. It does not mean that the church becomes Christ, but that they share a perfect community of life. So that here, what he is referring to is not the oneness of substance with the Father, but as there is perfect communion between the Father and the Son, so, in the perfection of our faith, there will be perfect communion between us and Christ and through Christ with God. I love one part of the explanation now. Uh, this person said that, inasmuch as uh, after one is accepted Christ, uh, he says, he becomes a new man, a new person. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he is uh, one with God and therefore God faith as Yes. Well, that of course is nothing but heresy and blasphemy because the essence of Christ's work is to regenerate us 
to remake us. We are reborn as men into the new humanity of Jesus Christ. And he is spoken of as the second or last Adam by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. All those who are born of the first Adam are uh, born into sin and death, but of the second Adam, Jesus Christ, when we are reborn again in him and his perfect humanity, we then are born again into life and righteousness. We do not become partakers of God's substance, but of his grace. We have a community of life with him, not of substance. And of course, they know this. It's a deliberate perversion of Scripture.
and said, I believe in order that I may understand, which is the Christian attitude. Yes? Um, do you think some people live their whole lives where they never really know what's going on? I just Yes, uh, I would put it this way. Some people live their whole life through and do not want to know what it is all about. Exactly. It is deliberate. They know where the answer is. Yes. Deliberately. Well, it is a form of epistemological self-consciousness. They know if they go in either direction, they will be face-to-face with the implications of what they are. So they feel that if they blot out everything, they will never have to come to grips with the issue. For example, one prominent writer of the 20s, in his latter years, was living in his apartment in New York with his walls lined with books, which included the Bible. And people who knew him said that he was aware of the fact that he was facing death, that the answers to the questions were in the Bible, but he avoided deliberately ever coming to grips with the issue. Any reference to the fact of death, any reference to the fact of God, any discussion toward the issues, because he did not want to face them. He was running away from the certainty of the knowledge that he was going to face judgment, and he did not want to believe that he didn't want to acknowledge that he didn't believe. And just uh, this week, I was reading of a very prominent artist. There was a page of uh, color illustrations of his paintings in Time magazine recently, who, after he passed youth and began to approach middle age, began to be terrified by the fact that time was passing and he was ultimately going to die. Now, he didn't want any answers concerning what was to face him, and he couldn't even bear to be alone, so his mistress had to hold his hand if he went across the street, because he couldn't bear to be alone to face the implications of his thoughts. And he finally committed suicide, because he was so afraid not only of death, but ultimately of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you feel that human nature is such that there is a uh, point in one's life where you are willing, more willing, let's say, to accept the truth. And then as you pass that point and you begin to know it, that's why sometimes you see people that you know are in the twilight of their life. They know they're going to die, they don't care. Because their hearts, their hearts seem to be hardened. It's not bothering them at all. I mean, with some they might be terrified, but with others they're not Christians, they found no answers, they say, when I'm dead, I'm dead. And, you know, I can have them with this little thing. They seem to be very hardened to them. Yes, on the surface they seem to be, but they die hard. I've been at uh, several hundred deathbeds. They die hard. 
they're fighting all the way because they are afraid. And go into any rest home today and Dorothy is working one. They won't even mention the word death. When they die, they simply say, uh, Mrs. So-and-so has gone to the hospital. And uh, the insanity of their total flight from reality, from self-knowledge, is uh, staggering. So they may talk uh, rather bravely while they're still able, but uh, there's no braveness as they come close to it. Because they do have a bad conscience and their heart has condemned them.
in psychiatry, or the journal of psychiatry, that the new morality is producing a tremendous amount of mental breakdown, especially among girls, which is not surprising. Well, our time is up and we stand dismissed.